Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Welcome back to the second hour of tonight's live Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting live every Friday evening here on Revolution.Radio, a leading free speech network, maybe the leading free speech network. So please help them out at Revolution.Radio and subscribe to me at KevinBarrett.Substack.com. Okay, we're going now to the other side of the world, that is to Australia, which is pretty much the direct other side of the world from where I sit here in the middle of the wilderness of North America, to talk to Jafar Ramini. He's a Palestinian writer and political analyst, and he is a Nakba survivor. Now, everybody knows about the Holocaust survivors, right? We get thousands of movies about them. We have museums in every town, city, hamlet, and burg celebrating their story. We hear about nothing but the Holy Holocaust. We don't hear much about the Palestinian Holocaust, which is the Nakba. It occurred in 1948, and Jafar Ramini survived it. He was five years old when his family uh, fled Palestine ahead of the massacres being committed by the Zionist militias. He lived most of his life in London. He's now in Perth, Western Australia, and he will be 80 years old tomorrow. And he will continue to strive for the for justice for the people of Palestine. So, hey, it's an honor to welcome Jafar Ramini. How are you, Jafar? Good morning and evening to you where you are. And thank you very much for hosting me. Very kind of you. I am fine. Thank you. Well, yeah, thank you for coming on. And it's a real honor. And, you know, we just observed the 71st, 75th anniversary of the Nakba. And it got a lot of attention. Um, we saw a kerfluffle at the United Nations. Uh, we saw uh, some Zionist panic about the... Uh, the, the fact that this was in the news. We saw ma- relatively mainstream groups and press actually covering this a little bit. We saw even some Jewish organizations um, saying the right things about the Nakba and the need for Jewish people <laughs> and for Israel to recognize it. You'd almost think we're making progress, and then you look at what's actually going on in occupied Palestine, and you'd say, well, maybe not. So, so Jaffer, I, I don't know, maybe we could just start. You could introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your your history and you know how how you have lived your life as a Palestinian uh, exile you know so somebody who's been targeted by this genocide against Palestine. Uh, thank you very much, Kevin. Yes, I, I was born in the in the city of Jenin, 1943, May 21st of May 1943, and as you just said, tomorrow I'll be 80. Uh, so I'm five years older than the so-called State of Israel. Um, just to give a perspective of what happened to us, uh, in 1947-48, the Zionist militia started to uh, um, the what they call the Dalit doctrine, which meant the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. They committed few a few massacres. They demolished over 550 uh, towns and villages. 
And of course, the news of these massacres spread through Palestine like wildfire. And people, I want your listeners to, to understand this, we were not army, we were not armed, we were not trained, we were just ordinary people, teachers, doctors, lawyers, far, pharmacists, farmers, laborers, uh, and we are civilians. And the most infamous of those uh, massacres was the Der Yassin massacre in, in the 9th of April 1948. Uh, Der Yassin, for, for the benefit of your listeners, there in Arabic means monastery. And it is a sleepy little village in the outskirts of Jerusalem, whereby the uh, forces of the Ergun uh, uh, militia happened at this village during the night and killed everybody inside. And the next morning, the survivors, they marched them into Jerusalem, lined them against the wall, and shot them dead. Uh, and you mentioned the Holocaust. The Yashvadim is where is now where Der Yassin was. So the news of these massacres uh, filtered through the, the northern of Palestine, Upper Galilee, and it reached us. So. We woke up one morning and Jenin was flooded by tens of thousands of refugees from all uh, the villages around Jenin. At that time, the conurbation of Jenin was 85 villages and, and uh, Israel destroyed or occupied 27 of them. So we became 58. And we woke up in the morning. We've never seen an aircraft before. There were aircrafts flying over Jenin, dropping leaflets like confetti, leave or die, and we had to flee. We fled, and I remember it vividly, as if it were yesterday. Uh, I was carried on the shoulders of my elder, my late elder brother, Mustafa, and we trekked through the hills and the mountains during the night, followed by uh, tanks and, and, and buzzing air, uh, airplanes and mortar uh, bombs and you name it uh, and we had to hide in caves in the mountains to 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 save ourselves and my namesake a boy who called Jafar Sayah was sitting next to me in the in the cave and the bullet went through his head this boy miraculously survived tens of thousands didn't so uh, after the so-called 1948 War of Independence, Jenin was saved and, and we came back to, uh, to our house uh, and to be usurped by Jordan, of course. Uh, and that's where the, the, the new phrase, the West Bank, was created to accommodate uh, King Abdullah I of Jordan. Uh, and I stayed in Jenin, I finished my secondary education, uh, and it was intolerable to live there, seeing the kibbutz glimmering lights uh, just five kilometers from my house in Jenin. Uh, so in 1962, at the age of 19, I left. Like most Palestinians who could, I went to Kuwait, and I stayed in Kuwait for 18 months, I couldn't bear it. Uh, then I went to Saudi Arabia for my sins, and I was in Riyadh when uh, King Faisal uh, took the place of his brother, King Saud. And then in 1968, I decided enough is enough. 
after the Six Day War, and I saw with my own eyes the Israeli uh, fighter jets flying over the Red Sea to hit Egypt, and the Saudis' anti aircraft uh, uh, guns were silent. So I said, That's it, we are sold out. And I went to London, and the rest is history. I lived in London for 53 years. And as you said in your introduction, I've been here two years. Okay, that's uh, quite a story. And it's the, the Nakba is so, you know, such a, a strong and you know, horrific kind of experience. You, you know, we hear the, you know, the descriptions of the people uh, facing the massacres, hearing about the massacres, being terrorized and bombed, and leaflets, like you say, saying leave or die being strafed and shot as they flee, it's actually the kind of story that you would almost think that Hollywood would make a lot of movies about, but for whatever reason, they don't. And this awareness of of the Nakba (laughs) has only been gradually increasing. Uh, So why, why do you think it is that this formative moment in the history of Palestine, which was obviously the most intense moment of this process of genocide that's been happening, has been really uh, so downplayed in the the world's consciousness. Uh, Kevin, my new friend, you are a very brave man uh, to to use words like Palestinian genocide and Palestinian Nakba and Palestinian uh, Holocaust. Is very brave, especially where you are. Uh, Voltaire once said, if you want to find who rules over you, look around and see who you can't uh, criticize. And that answers your question. Uh, the the uh, Zionist lobby in, in, in Washington is very strong. So everywhere, every capital in the West is penetrated by these guys. And if you open your mouth, either uh, you, you, you end of your career uh, and you are tagged as an anti-Semite. And if you are a conscientious Jew and he, uh, you say, not in, your, in my name, the Zionist lobby will tag you as a self-hating Jew. Uh, uh, and if we, the Palestinians, of course, we are not, we are a taboo. The word Palestine is a taboo. For them, we do not exist. And I really don't want to jam too too much information to your listeners to cope with. This started not in 1948. It started a hundred years before, in 1840, when the philanthropist, rich Jewish lords and barons of Europe decided to establish a colony in Palestine. And at that time, I'm sure you know, Uh, Palestine was under the Ottoman Empire, and in particular, uh, Lord Montefiore, Moses Montefiore, through his banking and and, uh, commerce activities, got in touch with Muhammad Ali, who was the ruler of Egypt then, and said, could you help us to establish a foothold in Palestine? Um, and they went to, to Istanbul, uh, and at that time it was um, uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid II, and he said, no way. Eventually, in 1882, they succeeded. Lord uh, Baron Edmund Richard 
bought land in Palestine in 1882 and established the first uh, Zionist colony called Rishon Lezion, which means the first uh, colony in Zion. And that was coupled by another uh, Bavarian baron uh, called Maurice de Hirsch, who established uh, an organization called the Jewish Colonization Association in 1891 uh, with, with a view of uh, encouraging Jews to migrate to Argentina. They had Argentina in sight, they had Uganda in sight, and even they have parts of this country where I am now, um, Australia in sight. But then the Zionist organization in 1897, in their first conference in Bâle in Switzerland, decided on Palestine. And the immigration started, they started to buy land from absentee landlords, which was a law under the Ottoman Empire, uh, which, we, which was carried out under the British mandate of Palestine, which allowed these rich Jews from Europe to buy a, a swathe of lands from landlords who were not Palestinians. They're, in those days, if you are a, a, a resident or a citizen of the British Empire, you could buy land everywhere. So these people were in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Egypt, landlords, absentee landlords, and the Jewish uh, association and Jewish fund paid them over the odds for their land and then used them to do so. And they bought the land and they started establishing migration uh, to, to, to Palestine. Uh, I would like your viewers to understand, if I may, that when that was happening in, in the early 20th century, there was no Holocaust. Uh, the Holocaust started in the 1930s by Germany, may I add, not us, the Palestinians or the Arabs. Yet we are blamed for it. If you speak to any Zionists, they will say to you, yes, but uh, uh, Hajj uh, al-Husseini went to, to and met with Hitler and asked him not to encourage Jews to, to, to uh, immigrate to Palestine. Uh, they have the power, my friend. They have the money. They have the organizations. And most important of all, and please forgive me for saying that, they occupy your country as well. You are occupied as well. It's funny you say that because that's actually the article I'm working on for American Free Press right now. That is the, uh, uh, the Palestinians catastrophe is, is our catastrophe too. Because if we total up the damage to the United States that's been done by the Zionist occupation of the United States, which happened somewhat gradually, whether it was $2 million handed to Harry Truman in cash in a suitcase uh, to help him get elected and to bribe him to recognize Israel, or whether it's the assassination of John F. Kennedy after he had put his foot down and said there will be no Israeli nuclear program, uh, or whether it's the USS Liberty incident, which nearly turned into World War III, uh, through the Zionist corruption of Lyndon Johnson, who was put in office by the, that assassination of Kennedy that had a big Israeli hand in it, or whether it's right up to 9-11, which is the issue that got me doing what I do now instead of teaching university, 
Uh, again, I think the Zionist hand in 9-11 is, is pretty obvious to anybody who studies that issue, too. And then there's the however many trillions of dollars that Israel has cost the United States. It was in the trillions, the estimate by the Christian Science Monitor 20 years ago. So who knows how many trillions we're up to at this point. And then the systematic corruption, as our intelligence services and our police have worked closely with uh, with Jewish organized crime, as well as the state of Israel, which interfaces with that, those organized crime networks. And the corruption here in the United States that's come out of this is a big part of what's wrong with the country right now. So, yeah, I agree. The U.S. is occupied and has been very badly damaged, but probably not to the extent that Palestine has. Uh, no, of course. Uh, the thing is that, you know, the, the, the famous slogan, the land of the free and the, the home of the brave. I mean, is it anymore? Uh, this started long before Truman, my friend. I mean, uh, Woodrow Wilson in September of 2017 was against the whole idea. And we all know people who study history. We all know about the Cairns report when, when Woodrow Wilson was approached by the British. To, to support the Balfour Declaration. Uh, he said no, uh, because the, the Ken report, the people came back and they said, look, nine-tenths of the people say no, it's no, otherwise it's going to be a bloodbath, and it's, it's very, very costly. Uh, and then in October of the same year, he changed his mind. I wonder why. And in answer to I wonder why, there are two books written by Americans one of two, two of whom I met, one of them is dead, and the other one is still uh, alive and kicking, a, a, a terrific lady by the name of uh, uh, Alison Ware. She wrote a book called Against Our Judgment, and she goes through the history it, of yeah, the Against Our Better Judgment. Yes, Against Our Better Judgment by Alison Ware. She, as well now, runs a blog Called, called If Americans Knew. Of course they don't know. They are not allowed to know. Everything to do with Israel is managed to the micro-nanosecond. So the American people are not allowed to know. The Australians are not allowed to know. The Canadians are not allowed to know. Anywhere you go where there is so-called free press, it isn't free. Now, this book by Alison Ware, Against Our Better Judgment, is a must-read for any American. Nothing to do with Palestine. It's just to show you how your country has been taken over. The other book by Senator Paul Findlay, whom I met when I was in Washington before he died, and he gave me a copy of the book, called they dare to speak out. And just imagine from the title, if you are a congressman, if you are a senator, if you are a would-be politician, if you are an American boy or girl who aspire to help your country and, and go into politics, if you don't sign, and I mean sign a piece of paper to, to pledge your allegiance to Israel, you have no hope in hell. I mean, why would Kevin Barrett, who wants to be a politician, who is American, 
sign a pledge to a foreign country, not to his own. And if you don't, forget it. You will have no way of succeeding. Yeah, I've talked about that with my friend uh, Cynthia McKinney, <clears throat> the former uh, Congress person from Georgia who ran for president on the Green Party ticket. And she was one of the people who publicized that, who said that when she was elected to Congress, kind of the first thing that happened was the Zionists showed up with a, a pledge, of a loyalty pledge to the state of Israel, pointing out that if she, you know, she needed to sign it to assure herself a political future in Washington. And her response was just what you said. Why should I be signing a loyalty pledge to a foreign state so I can serve here in the United States? And she turned them down. And then she ended up... Uh, being, I, f I think she was a six-term congresswoman, but they were not contiguous because the Zionists kept running people against her, getting her thrown out of Congress. You know, they run a primary opponent, and they give them huge piles of money. They did that. I think twice she was defeated in primaries, and then she kept coming back. So she served a total of six terms and then ran for president. And you would think her story would be pretty well-known in the United States, and she's African-American, and she's female, and those are big pluses these days. But... And believe it or not, they've managed to really completely obliterate her, really, from the uh, mainstream public consciousness. Uh, and, uh, you know, she it's 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 just amazing. But, yeah, anyway, she talks about that that loyalty pledge and she was just shocked. And I would think everybody would be. I don't know why people can do sign pledges like that. I mean, how, how could anyone do it? I I don't understand it. <laughs> well, it's, it's called. Uh, Self-preservation. They, 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 <laughs> they want to stay in their place of work and they, they, they carry on. But what they carry on what? I mean, they, they don't serve the people. They serve a foreign country. And they, they are given their orders by, by the lobby, especially APAC. Uh, and you see the, the, the circus every year when APAC summons all these people or would be hopefuls, even now when they are running for the presidency next year, 2024, and Mr. Trump uh, and the, the, the likes uh, scurry to, to APAC to, to, to prostrate themselves at the feet of Israel. For God's sake, you are running for the highest office in the, state, in the United States of America, the most powerful empire known to man, and you are puppets. How do the American people allow this to happen? Mm -hmm. I mean, now, they're the two big financial powers controlling each party, the Republicans uh, and the, the, the Democrats. The Democrats are financed and, and, and uh, by Saban, uh, a, a Jew who was born in, in Egypt and now a huge magnate in property and entertainment. And uh, the Allison, who, who was in, in, in Las Vegas, the, the, the billionaire gambling magnate. And of course, he died and his wife uh, took over, who is an Israeli. And he once said, uh, I, I served in the American army. I wish I had served in, in, in the Israeli army. And he, he actually was urging uh, Trump to drop uh, an atomic bomb over Iran. I mean, what is happening? What, what, where is democracy? Where is the, you know what kills me, uh, Kevin, about politicians from your country? Every time they open their mouth, 
democracy and our way of life and our values. What are they, please? Tell me what are your values? If you prostrate, prostrate yourself at the feet of Israel and give them $10 million a day plus, where is your independence? Where is your democracy? What are your values? I'm also interested in how did it reach this point. As you said, there's a whole history to it, and I think there's been give and take. Uh, there have been uh, people who stood up to the Zionists in one way or another. I think Eisenhower did with the Suez uh, incident, and Kennedy obviously did and paid for it with his life. Then uh, we saw that people like, um, well, Nixon and Kissinger apparently did push back a little bit, uh, in various ways against the Zionists, that Jimmy Carter wanted to solve or, you know, to solve the problem or, or, you know, get some kind of peace agreement. And that may have been one of the reasons he was a one-term president. Uh, George H.W. Bush sold AWACS to Saudi Arabia and, and wouldn't obey Zionist orders. And that's probably one reason that he was a, a one-term president. Uh, Reagan actually was not entirely controlled by the Zionists, but of course had to recognize their power and do what they, some of what they told him. But, uh, uh, so there's, there's this whole history, I think. Clinton, like Carter, wanted a peace agreement as his legacy. And he was a two-term president, but they, they sabotaged his second term and his ability to get that peace agreement by sending Monica Lewinsky, uh, in to, uh, to mess with him. And then, of course, they sabotage the peace agreement by, be you know, not being willing to be flexible and, and actually negotiate. So we, and then, of course, 9/11 was in many ways a Zionist or neocon Zionist coup d'état. And since then, it's been a Zionist dictatorship, as far as I can tell, with no meaningful pushback whatsoever. Even Obama, who I don't think had any particular sympathy with the Zionists, certainly hated Netanyahu's guts. But even he had to appoint Rahm Emanuel as his chief of staff. And Rahm Emanuel is another guy like Sheldon Adelson, except Rahm actually did serve in the Israeli army instead of the American army. And when Obama was asked why did he appoint Rahm Emanuel as chief of staff, when all Rahm did was sabotage what Obama had promised, like closing Guantanamo and so on, Obama replied, we owed some people. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I, I think there's been a, a kind of a gradual takeover and the two biggest inflection points would be the JFK assassination, because when the Zionists, together with some folks in the United States, uh, are able to kill the president and get away with it, that's a pretty big inflection point. And then 9-11, when the Zionists can blow up the World Trade Center and blame it on plane crashes and office fires by their enemies and take hijack the U.S. armed forces to destroy the hostile neighbors around them, I mean, that, that pretty much finishes the whole thing off. And so I, I think we've been really a de facto Zionist colony since 9-11. That's my reading of the history anyway. And um, I'm obviously not happy about it. And that's why I've been doing what I call truth jihad radio <laughs> ever since I woke up to this. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I advise you not to, add, to use the word jihad because they will rain on you like, like, like the devil. Well, it's, it's, it's supposed that, to be, that's it's kind of ironic. Way. It's, it's meant ironically with some self-effacing yes, humor. I, I, I uh, but, but no, serious, but there's a serious <laughs> element to it too, because as you know, the word jihad is actually, it's, it's a positive word 
in Muslim culture. It means uh, striving, effort, or struggle to defend the community, um, whether by military or other means. So it's actually a good thing. And, of course, the word has taken on these negative connotations in the West. Everything. Yeah. Everything is distorted. Everything is is rejected. You, you cannot... You cannot say a thing against it, not a word against Israel. And just to give it on a lighter note, because I think our conversation is getting a bit too heavy for your listeners. Uh, Obama. <laughs> not, not my listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Obama, when he was in, in a conference in, in, in France during the Sarkozy time, and Sarkozy complained about uh, Mr. Netanyahu, and he said, I cannot deal with this man. Every word that comes out of his mouth is a lie. And Obama, not knowing that the mic was alive, said to him, you're complaining after you're meeting him once. I have to deal with him every day. And then to, to add assault to injury, Congress, both, both houses of Congress, allowed Mr. Netanyahu to come and address the two houses of Congress by passing Obama. I mean, honestly, do the American people know this kind of power? And, and then the, the, the American Congress people all good, competed with each other, seeing who could you know, give the most enthusiastic standing ovation every 10 seconds of oh, Netanyahu's speech. I counted. There were 31, Kevin. <laughs> there were 31 standing ovations while the president was frozen in the White House. Yeah, you, can, you can't mean, make this stuff up. So, so you know, this... No, this... you can't. You can't. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's tragic. It's tragic. Kevin, uh, I promise you, I mean, people think I don't, I, I hate America. I don't. I love America. I visited uh, tens of times in every state. I wanted to see why the American people are so against us. And when Obama was elected uh, in uh, first, first term, I think it was uh, 2016, no, 2008, I was in California with my wife and children. We were in Big Bear Lake. Uh, and a friend of mine called and said, did you hear? I said, no, what? I'm in the mountains in California. He said, Obama uh, was just elected as the president of the United States, the first black uh, African-American. And I said, wow. Then I wrote an article called, I am not celebrating it. And I was right. He came to Cairo, if you remember. He made that fantastic speech in Cairo. Well, about it, it, had, it, it, was, it was a good speech in some ways, but he did say that, uh, you know, you, you, you must admit that Al-Qaeda really did 9-11. It was the Islamic radicals who did it, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Which, uh, yes, that but... was, I was not thrilled <laughs> with that part. No, no, I, I'm, I'm sure you, you're not. I, I, I don't want really to talk about 9-11 because that's your baby. I want to talk about Palestine and what happened to us and all, all the things that still happening to us approved and sanctioned and, and, and financed by your taxpayers' dollars. Uh, I mean, what have ever we done to America to deserve this? Uh, and as I said, I traveled from the Dakotas to the Nebraskas to the Carolinas, New York, Washington, whatever, to see why. And I couldn't understand it other than either enforce ignorance or willful ignorance. It's uh, uh, nobody. I mean, I tell you a very 
sort of amusing anecdote. I was in Florida once on a business trip for my late brother. Uh, and we, we were trying to get American companies to go to Jordan and build a new city. And I was waiting for my host, and this lady came out of the swimming pool. And if you imagine me in the 1980s, I wasn't a bad-looking Palestinian boy. Uh, and she tried to pick me up. And I am I'm polite, so I stood up and I said, good morning, and I introduced myself. And she said, oh, you're English. I said, no, no, I'm not. And she started to tell me about herself that she's a reborn Christian. And I said, all right. And she said, uh, and uh, what are you? I said, I was born a Muslim. And I promise you, Kevin, she said, a Muslim? I said, no, madam, a Muslim. A Muslim is a cloth. And then she said, ah, all right, and where are you from? I said, Palestine. I promise you, she said, where is that? Madam, you just told me you are a reborn Christian. You don't know where Christ was born? What's the point? What is the point, Kevin? Mm -hmm. They are brainwashed, they are bombarded by news and lies and fabri fabrications by the Zionist lobby and the so-called mainstream media. And we are all in trouble, including yourself, any good American citizen who wants to see his country released from the shackles of Zionism and money. You are against it. Yeah. Well, you know, at this point, I've pretty much, uh, I wouldn't say given up on the U.S. completely, but frankly, uh, well, I'm, I'm actually working on moving to Morocco, inshallah, because <laughs> uh, I, th I think I can get a little more perspective. It's, it's really, get, it is burdensome. You know, everything you're saying is, is absolutely right. And of course, these are among the worst things about the United States is it's it's obsequious kowtowing to Zionism and letting the Zionists just completely take us over, run us into the ground and make us do all these horrible things. Uh, that's a, a big part of it. But there are even more bad things, too, that I won't go into on this particular show. And yeah, it's it's uh, ab absolutely frustrating and discouraging. You know, the biggest empire in history can't educate its people to know anything about the world, I guess doesn't really want to. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you saw that, that YouTube film, uh, Where Should We Invade Next, where the host points to countries on the map. They're usually misnamed, you know, and, and says, yeah, what should we, should we inv invade Australia? And, you know, points to the tip of South Africa. And they Why say, not? yeah, let's invade Australia. <laughs> well, you are invading Australia because you're pushing the poor Australians to side, not you, I'm sorry, Kevin, your, your, your government is invading Australia. They're pushing the, the poor Australians uh, to side with, with, with the United States of America against China. I mean, China is next door, and China is the first uh, trading partner of Australia. Yet the Americans are pressuring the Australians to take sides with them against their benefactor. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. And I know about the military-industrial complex in America government, and they 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 survive and they thrive and on on wars. And if there is no conflict, there is no money. So they create them. And this reminds me of, uh, again, another victim of the uh, Israeli lobby in Washington, uh, four-star General Wesley Clark. 
And it, I mean, all your viewers can see him on, on, on tape, on, on YouTube. When he was uh, at the Pentagon, and one of his, he was about to run for the, for the presidency, and one of his uh, old officers called him and said, Sir, would you give me a minute after he's seen Rumsfeld? And the man came down and said, yes, what can I do for you? Uh, and he, he took a piece of paper from his desk and said, here, have a look at this. And he read it, and it says that America is going to invade seven Arab and Muslim countries in the next five years. What for? Yeah. For Israel, of course. These are proxy wars. And we, we saw it happen. Yemen, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Afghanistan. Why did America go to fight in Afghanistan for 20 years? If we are students of history, we know nobody ever, ever won in Afghanistan since Alexander the Great. Nobody wins there. And they went there 20 years ago, and they came out with their tails between their legs, and they abandoned hundreds of thousands of Afghanis who facilitated the Americans in Afghanistan. So how could you trust these people? They want war because war makes money. War makes America sells hardware and technology. And if successful, occupy the country, like they're doing now in northern Syria. Why are the Americans in Syria? What is it to do with them? The civil war in Syria that was manufactured by America and, and Israel and the Gulf states. Now, you see, Gavin, this is why people think I hate America. I don't. I hate American governments and politicians who are led by the nose by special interests and Zionist power and money. Yes. Why is America occupying northern part of Syria? We know why. They want the oil and they want Syria fragmented. And now, I'm sure you're aware, Syria has been brought back into the family, into the uh, Arab League. And America is threatening any Arab country, actually threatening them. If you deal with Syria, you will be sanctioned. For God's sake, what the devil are you all about? You, th you think the, the Americans are, are forcing more and more of the world um, out of out from under their own empire by sanctioning everybody, by using sanctions too broadly, forcing the world to get out of dollars and get out of these instruments that can be sanctioned. And so the BRICS alliance, the Russia-China-Iran grouping is making a lot of headway these days, as we see with China brokering peace between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. We see Russia brokering peace between Syria and Turkey. And so whatever is happening in Ukraine, and it doesn't look like it's all that great for Zelensky to me, it seems that on the larger geopolitical side that the Russia-China-Iran grouping of powers that are relatively independent from the U.S. is actually thriving. And that the days of this Zionist 
run American empire may be numbered. Would, would you agree? And, how, and if so, how fast can we expect the Americans well, I, to retreat? I, I do agree, and I hope it will happen as fast as possible for the sake of America and, and the world, because their destructive little finger is on the bottom. Uh, and uh, I'm sure you know about the, the Samson option in Israel, uh, which, which you know, from the biblical term, they, they use the Bible as a, as, as a, a tool. Uh, it's Samson and Delilah and all that in the Bible and uh, bring it over his head and everybody else. Uh, and nobody's allowed to talk about that. I mean, nobody's allowed to talk about the nuclear, uh, the 300 nuclear warheads that uh, Israel have. And we know uh, about Jonathan Pollock, who stole the uh, the American technology and gave it to Israel, and he was imprisoned in California. And when he was released upon pressure from Netanyahu, he went back to Israel uh, with the, where they met him like a hero, returning hero. You mentioned the liberty at the beginning of the program. Inquiry after inquiry of killing 135 American sailors and trying to blame it on Egypt, when America knew it was the Israeli Air Force who did it, show me one inquiry that reached a conclusion in America since that time of 1967. Nothing. They run everything. And when you say that, you are an anti-Semite. Uh, yet some of them come out and say, you know, we shouldn't be uh, sort of bashful about our power. We end it. All right. And the power, but don't use it for evil. Use it for the better betterment of your country and your people, because you're supposedly an American. You find it odd that the U.S. armed forces, which are very powerful, and they have the revolving door through the military-industrial complex, so many of the people are very wealthy as well. So this grouping of the military uh, people and ex-military people in the United States have a lot of power, and one would ask, well, ideologically, they should be patriotic and loyal to the United States, and they should be appalled at the Israeli Zionist takeover of the United States. And you ask yourself, why have they allowed it to happen? You know, why did they allow the Israelis to murder the president, uh, Kennedy, and then his brother? Why did they allow the Israelis to do the Liberty Incident, uh, 9-11, etc., and all these other things, assassinations and so on? And, and, uh, and all kinds of corruption and stealing nuclear secrets, stealing nuclear materials. And, you know, some of them brag about it. Haim Shaban brags about it. So all of this, you know, just extreme treason really going on and criminality and this, uh, hostile foreign power doing these terrible things to the United States. Why would the military here put up with that? And, you know, one of the reasons, there may be a number of them, but one of them, uh, maybe that Kay Griggs, this, she's a military officer's wife. I actually met her back in, I think, 2005. I uh, walked around Washington, D.C. with her at an event. And anyway, she is well known for talking about a corrupt ring of kind of, quote-unquote, satanic deviance uh, in the officer ranks <laughs> in the U.S. military. And when we look at the way that blackmail, including sexual blackmail and related kinds of blackmail where people are shameful secrets are accumulated and people are manipulated around them. We saw Jeffrey Epstein, an Israeli sexual blackmailer with total 
run, the run of the roost, be going anywhere he wants, all over with the top American leaders, uh, whether politicians like uh, Clinton and perhaps Trump, uh, Bill Gates, uh, the biggest magnates. Uh, so this kind of uh, extreme corruption and blackmail of American elites, I think it's reached the military, as Kay Griggs has written about. And uh, so I, I think that's an element of the you know, a picture, a piece of the puzzle that we need to be more aware of is that the Zionists specialize in this kind of corruption and blackmail. Uh, would you agree with that? Uh, well, I do. I mean, I do. I, 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 it, this has been my life for for the last 75 years, Gavin, there isn't a, a semicolon about Israel I am not aware of. Um, and I, I know, I know what's happening. In America. And there is one simple answer, follow the money. I mean, when you, when you see that uh, uh, Sheldon Adelson, the, the, the uh, Las Vegas gambling magnate, spent $35 million to have Trump elected, who at the beginning of his campaign said to the to the Jewish audience he was addressing, I know you, you are your killers. You will not you will not uh, vote for me because I know you. I've been working with you and around you for a long time. Then he changed his mind. And, well, and no, he actually, Jeff, actually, actually, I think Trump meant that as a compliment. He said, "Like I know you, you guys are killers." You know, you're 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 like me, and he he was angling for their money. He wasn't saying they were going to all go against him. Okay, uh, I, I stand corrected. But at the, at the end of the day, the result is, is uh, uh, Sheldon Adelson and his wife gave him thirty-five million dollars. Uh, I, I think it actually was uh, more than that. I think it was close. Like the the sum total came out, it was pushing towards a hundred million. I think. At the end, yes, but yeah. at the beginning, they, they oh, gave right. him about 30, 35 yeah. million. Okay. Yeah. And the other one, Saban, is for, for the Democrats. So they, 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 they have the stranglehold uh, of the funds. And I don't know really, Kevin, if we are a democracy in the United States of America or here in Australia, why do we have to sell our leaders like a packet of crisps? Why this enormous cost? And that's how they control, because without money in America, you cannot win. You have to buy the radio, you have to buy the newspapers, you have to buy the ads, I mean, and the TV and so on and so And these packs, that, these packs cannot be clean. They, they, nobody gives this amount of money out of love. They give it for a reason. They want a payback. And in, in the case of Trump, the payback was very obvious and i i do talks here uh, kevin and i speak about this all the time when um, uh, trump went to speak to apac he referred to us the palestinians they will come to the table i'll make them come to the table and they will be told uh, they, they will do as they're told and when he was in office the first thing he gifted uh, Netanyahu was recognition of uh, Israel as the, uh, the uh, undivided eternal capital of, of, of the Jews, uh, uh, legitimizing the fifth of the Golan Heights, uh, calling us we are not occupied, kicking out the PLO uh, delegation from Washington, uh, stopping uh, funds to the UNRWA which helps 5 million Palestinian refugees, which his son-in-law 
try to change the name that they are not refugees. Uh, and all the corruption that went around it with the stories of Jared Kushner and, and Prince Mohammed bin Salman are very well known. I mean, he came, he gave him $2 billion for one of his uh, investment companies. I mean, who the hell is Jared Kushner? He is the guy who gave them the Abraham Accords, of course. And you see, religion is exclusive to them as well. Abraham is theirs, not ours. If you are a believer, uh, there is Islam, there is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all Abrahamic voice. So, uh, religions. So they hijacked the name and tried to pressure the Palestinians to take what they termed as the deal of the century. And I wrote about it as the steel of the century, because what they're doing is exactly the plan of the early Zionists of the greater Israel. That's why in my latest article, I, it was published a couple of days ago. I don't know if you've seen it. I'm, I'm calling it I'm, I call it the ongoing Nakba because it hasn't stopped. The greater Israel plan as published in 1982, there for everybody to see, the Zionist plan for the Middle East for by a guy called Anon. Uh, it's there, and show you they show you the map from the Yuk, from, as exactly in the Bible, from the brook of the Nile to the Euphrates. That's why Israel doesn't have declared borders. That's why Israel doesn't have a declared constitution. Because the job is not finished yet. And who's paying the price? Us, the Palestinians. Alone. We have been abandoned. You see what's happening on, uh, as we speak now, what's happening in Jerusalem. And on, on Thursday, the March of the Flags. And the en encroachment on Al-Aqsa Mosque. Every day, Ben Gvir, Yehuda Glock, all these people... For the first time as well, Gavin, maybe people did not notice. One of the flags that was carried by these feral settlers was the flag carrying the picture of the proposed temple. And to, to have that built, and there is a movement funded by the Israeli government called Rebuild the Temple, which Yehuda Klok, a rabbi, is the head of, it will be to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And what do you think 1.8 billion Muslims around the world are going to do right. if yeah. that happens? That, that mosque is the oldest and greatest Islamic architectural monument on earth. Well, there you are. You said it. 1,400 years of history. No, they are... You see, I, I wrote that article yesterday and I invoked Jesus Christ. Because I was in a visit uh, to, to uh, Budapest, and I went to this church, and I saw the opulence and the glitter and gold and whatnot. Uh, and I, I was walking around, then I saw a bust of the Christ uh, with the thorns around his head, very austere. And I said to my wife, come and have a look. And I, I, I stood there, and she took a picture of me next to the bust, uh, and I wrote an article yesterday, and it was published yesterday, actually, uh, in a publication called Pearls and Irritations. And I mentioned it. 
Look, Kevin, I really don't want to put you in trouble, my friend, but I could quote you endlessly what rabbis and chief rabbis have said about us, the Palestinians, and about you. I'll give you one example. The one example is the late chief rabbi of Israel, Ovedia bin Yusuf, said the following, and I quote, Goyim were born to serve us. Without that, they have no place in the world, only to serve the people of Israel. This is the chief rabbi of Israel. Mm-hmm. And Goyim, for your listeners, if they don't know what it is, it's you and me, right. who are not Jews. These are the Goyim. Yeah. So all our sole purpose here is to serve them. Yet, the evangelical Christians support them. I mean, hello, you yeah. want the Messiah to come back? These people say you are there to serve them. Yeah. So why are you helping them? You know, what, what, what do you think about the, the sort of messianic millenarian dimension of Zionism? You're talking, you've talked about these lunatics who want to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque and rebuild the temple, uh, who have this vision of the Jewish Messiah as a military conqueror who will lead the Jews in the complete conquest and subjugation of the Goyim, that is the non-Jews, turning the Goyim or non-Jews into the slaves of the Jews. That's been a dominant millenarian messianistic vision among uh, Jews for, for many, many ages. Whereas uh, Christians and Muslims agree that Jesus was the Messiah. And so there's a, a yep. big difference between the, the Jewish uh, messianic tendencies and the Christian Islamic ones. Uh, and do you, do you see Israel as primarily a secular nation-building project, as we're so often told, or is it really a kind of a bizarre uh, kind of uh, symptom of this extreme messianic millenarianism? Well, it is the, 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 the latest. I mean, look, if you've seen the, 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 the march of, 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 of the flags, on Thursday, they are chanting openly, Muhammad is dead. Openly, Kevin, they say it out loud. Your second Nakba is coming. They added a new one last year. May your village burn and we're coming to get you. And I don't want to use uh, profanities on your program. What they said about Mary. And we saw them. We saw them last month during the Easter holidays stopping the Christians from going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Yet, the evangelicals support them. Mm -hmm. You could could almost argue, in fact, I have uh, played with this argument, that Zionism is Antichrist. Because after all, it is the ideology, the Messianic ideology of the people who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So if their Messiah would be the Antichrist. And so it is ironic, isn't it, that the Christian evangelicals would be siding with the Zionist Antichrist. I hope Mr. Hagi is listening to this. So <laughs> Unfortunately, probably not. can't see the error of his ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's, it, you know, this is, it doesn't require great biblical erudition to notice this, but I guess nobody's really allowed to notice it. Um, that's the yeah. word. You're not allowed. 
which again, whether or not Voltaire really said it, it's obvious that, yeah, ask who rules over you and it's, uh, it's the people you can't criticize. Uh, and so we only have one minute left. Well, what, what can people do to, to get involved, learn more or, uh, or follow your work? The, the word is learn. I mean, the, I, I started a, a YouTube channel a couple of years ago, and I went through the history. They're, they're very easy to understand. They're all 10, 9, 8 minute uh, segments. I did, I think, 24. Uh, I write on Facebook almost on a daily basis. I, I try to publish when I'm allowed, like this one I've told you about pearls and irritations here in Australia. Uh, they've been publishing me for the last three months, thankfully, because I wasn't allowed before. I, I did a speech once here for Amnesty International in an area here called uh, Margaret River. Uh, and none of the local newspapers will, will come and uh, listen or do anything about it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah I've, I've, I've had a hard time getting this kind of information in the media, too. Well, I'm sorry, we're, we're at the end of the show. I hear the music in the background. So I have to say thank you, Jeff Aramini. It's been a wonderful conversation, and I'm, I'm very impressed by your commitment and knowledge of this important issue. So I hope to have you back someday. You're very kind. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to come back, and good luck. And enjoy Morocco. It's a beautiful country. Okay, it certainly is. And maybe I'll talk to you from there again. Uh, take care. Excellent. Bye-bye. Bye. It's Jeff Aramini, Palestinian writer and political analyst. Kevin Barrett here of kevindarrett.substack.com. See you next time.